Um, so to answer the question of is God a conservative, I say, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Without a doubt. Deeply, deeply, deeply conservative. Not in the political sense, but in a, in a, um, in a rather caustic, violent sense. We already know this is going to be fire this week. Come on now. This is Profane Faith. us a hard time for being white and being American and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln. Okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black, it's our God. Jesus Christ has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. All right, all right. Here we go. Here we go, yo. Oh my gosh. Well, I'll keep it short this week. Welcome to Profane Faith. If you're just joining us, we're in a series right now looking at um, God and the nature and personhood and culture and ontological space of who God actually may be or God's plural. Um, last week I had my good friend, uh, Reverend Dr. Soon to be Sean Watkins on, and we covered, uh, a lot of ground. If you haven't had a chance to hear that, I highly recommend going back and checking that out. As you know, or maybe you don't know, um, Profane Faith is wherever fine podcasts are found. So you can look that up and uh, check that out. But if you've been with us for a while, you've been with the Profane Faith fam, you know that we cover a lot of these topics. And this is something that I've wanted to cover for a while now and something that I've wanted to explore to see, you know, um, let's push a little bit further um, in our own theological understanding and how in particularly how we view and interact with God, because so much of that image and that ideology, ir- irregardless of, of God, uh, you know, whether it be the person, the entity, the idea that the ideology around God um, is what gets people to do uh, crazy and stupid shit. And um, that's what I'm trying to explore. That's what I'm or part of what I'm trying to explore uh, and kind of bring out Um and uh, last week we were covering race, uh, blackness, um, critical race theory, um, how that uh, you know gets turned around and how that gets looked at. And um, you know this week we'll also be looking at that and also be looking at how that also gets engaged and in the mix of all that. Because again, you can't you disassociate um, you know bias in that, and that includes those. Of, I've said this on the show before. Um, you know those authors um, and, and and folks who constructed what we would call the Holy Bible. Um, I believe that bias is embedded in that. Um, and so I've been wanting to kind of go down this road for a while. And so this week, I have my good friend and colleague, brilliant mind, 
Dr. Christopher Driscoll. Uh, he's been on the show before. Uh, you can go back again and look and check those out and get his bio and his back history and everything. But I wanted to jump right in with him because uh, this man has got some just great views on God. And as soon as this thing came up, I texted him and he was uh, available. And I was like, let's book a time and let's discuss this. So um, that's what we're doing this week uh, with brother Christopher Driscoll. He is um, a, you know, he's a professor at Lehigh University in, in Philly, out in Philly, the religious studies department. Uh, but more importantly, I love the way his, his wrestling with theological notions, humanism, um, atheism, aspects of that uh, come together, and particularly this conversation. Um, as always, uh, when I bring Brother Driscoll on, I always recommend uh, getting out a notepad. Um, this brother goes deep. And uh, I also wanted to cover just some some thoughts also around Marxism, um, particularly the way Marxism, critical race theory, socialism has been, uh, you know, viewed and kind of interacted with uh, in the media of late, especially those on the right um, and just kind of how they have crafted that argument around uh, CRT and socialism. And of course, Marxism falls into that. So I you know, wanted to have a little bit of conversation around that. Um, and again, just the notion of what does um, God look like? Because again, like I said last week, if we read God, right, we have a God that's very uh, jealous in that sense. I mean, really, we read a God that really is is going to punk you down uh, if you don't follow this God. We uh, we have a God that, in, in particularly reading in the Old Testament, right, that is pretty much, you know, like either follow me or I'll kill you. Um, and I think we had to explore that violence a little bit, um, that violent side of God. You know, when we talk about God as love, I don't know about that. <laughs> I really don't. I know that's the notion and that's what's gotten kind of fed out into Western evangelicalism, um, aspects of Pentecostalism, right? Almost every church you drive down the street, you know, has things, you know, God loves you. Um, but does God, you know, this guy always seems pretty pissed off and upset about something and ready to just take a whole goddamn city out. So, um, I think these are important conversations to have. So without any further ado, again, um, go back and check last week. Check out uh, Brother Sean Watkins this week. Again, Dr. Christopher Driscoll, you know, talking about uh, this particular thesis of mine. And uh, in the following week, I won't let you know yet. We're going to have another guest and they're going to bring it just as heavy. All right, y'all. Um, if you're listening to this in real time, I think today is the 4th of July. If, if you celebrate, um, I don't. <laughs> and um, uh, for a lot of different reasons that I've talked about on the show, again, if you're new to the show, please, by all means, go and like us and follow us. You can just go to iTunes, make it simple. Look up Profane Faith and check out some of our past episodes about Independence Day and 4th of July. I also got some essays like that um, on about that. And I'm sure you can find a lot of bunch of that other stuff just online as well. People you follow on social media. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you're celebrating, if you're listening in real time, great hats off to you. Uh, no judgment. Uh, I am not. I'm enjoying a nice chill day. Um, and editing this podcast and getting it out to you folks. Uh, otherwise, if you're not listening in real time. Be safe. Be real. Keep reading, folks. Keep that critical intellect. All right. Check this conversation out, y'all. I am too, man. I am too. Well, thanks again, uh, Brother Driscoll, Dr. Chris Driscoll over here on Profane Faith. We're hooking it up here. And um, 
Well, first, because uh, I've had you on the show before, so we've gotten your history. We've gotten a little bit about you know your work that you have been involved with and continue to be involved with. Um, how do you approach? You know, you're a religious studies scholar. How do you approach that conversation, especially when some more religious folks will say, oh, religious studies is just secular. They don't even study God in that. They don't, you know, they're just looking at it from a sociological perspective. How do you approach God from the work you're doing right now? Let's start there. That's such a great uh, question. I think for me, I'm wrapping up a book right now that I'll I'll plug, but not in a shameless way. It really is connected. So the, the book is called Who You Call in Devil? white men, black gods, and religious codependency. And, and, and in that book, I'm thinking about the relationship between race, religion, and monotheism in particular, as well as uh, other uh, modes of social oppression like sexism, misogyny, but um, also including alcoholism and uh, like all of the isms, there's a uh, there's a song called "How to Kill God" by uh, the artist Raskas, and in it he says, uh, "Racism, sexism, every ism is a schism." Mm. And uh, I'm kind of holding that as a lens through which to look at both human and divine problems. So I say all of that about the book because the book is really an effort to think theologically about the human or to think anthropologically about God. So to kind of dismantle the assumed distinctions between those different categories. Hmm. And um, so in that way, like questions like, is God a conservative or liberal? Is God a white racist? Like William Jones once asked, right, uh, right. Is, is God this or that kind of a thing? Um, are really questions about are we this or that kind of a thing? Like, who is it um, that we're talking about when we're talking about these different gods? And so that's kind of my starting point is um, dismantling that basic sacred profane distinction that we assume. Not to say there's not a real metaphysical distinction somewhere out there. Where, In other words, who's to say that there is not some reality transcendent of all of this. But my concerns aren't really so much about that one way or the other. They're more to try and get people to think about what are the meanings that we're um, associating with those ideas. Um, So that's kind of where I I start, um, I guess. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, And and particularly with, like you said, you know, with with God, I mean, it's like, you know, in, in whiteness and race. How have you seen, especially being in the academy, right? How have you seen just race play out in just like pedagogy? Like, how have you seen that stuff play out in the classroom? Uh, yeah, let me, let me, let me, let oh me ask goodness. that. Yeah, so that, um, it's really, really palpable the kind of racial codings and the gendered codings that uh, our students inherit. I mean, we all inherit, but that play out in the classroom largely because of the way that students inherit it. So in in my case, being a white guy, being a straight white guy, being a Protestant white guy, um, I I carry 
certain degrees of privilege, certain expectations about um, being an authority in a way that I had lots of colleagues uh, of color, uh, particularly women of color, are in the position where they come into the classroom and the students are having a different kind of a relationship with them. Students will, rather than assume that they represent the authority, they assume some more kind of dialogical model of exchange, which may or may not be what the uh, professor is going for. But it's interesting that in the it, when my body enters a classroom, heads, white, black, brown, or otherwise, tend to turn towards me as if what's gonna come out of my mouth is something that is like authoritative and trust, trustable in a way that uh, colleagues of color, um, female colleagues of color in particular, have to do this kind of extra work of uh, somehow undergirding or proving their authority. Uh, so that's one way. Um, uh, another way that race plays out in the classroom is largely through having to dismantle, spend a lot of time disconnecting and deconstructing the racial narratives that the students come in with just in, a, in, a, in terms of the content, not in terms of the power dynamic between professor and student, but take uh, critical race theory, for instance. Yes, so please. Lots of students in our classrooms are part of households and communities that are really, really worked up in a fervor over something called critical race theory. Most of them probably don't have uh, a robust understanding of what that even really means. It's more of a caricature based on, I don't know, certain pundits on the news and things like that. But nevertheless, they come in assuming that they're in the midst of the culture wars in, this, in my classroom. And I, so I have to spend a whole lot of time just trying to assuage their anxieties that I'm not here to turn them into liberals. I'm not here to turn them back into conservatives. I'm here to teach them about the history of religions or I'm here to teach them about the history of theology, 20th, 19th century theology in particular in my case. And in that regard, race is gonna be a topic that we talk about, but not because I have some sort of political ax to grind, but because I, I value history. And I think that historicizing and uh, giving substantial attention to the social contexts from which beliefs and belief structures emerge, monotheism being one, biblical monotheism in particular, um, I think it requires attention to race. It requires attention to gender. It requires, I mean, we don't call, uh, 80 years ago, the Abrahamic traditions, you to open an encyclopedia of religion towards those traditions, and they were referred to as patriarchal religions. They weren't meaning that in a kind of critical way that we would use the term now, but the term still means the same thing. These were religions that were organized around men maintaining all of the power and control. And so if we're not giving attention to social context and social difference, then these students are simply not gonna be able to, um, uh, to really study or understand how these traditions have, have worked over time. 
critical race theory is just the, the latest of countless kind of blockages that students come in with mm-hmm. um, that we have to spend a lot of time addressing before we can even do the more substantial work of learning about history. Right, right. Well, and I think that, I mean, I like that because, you, I mean, there is a lot of work that has to be done sometimes. So it's it's very labor intensive, right? You know, when folks come into a particular place and especially at a university like where I teach at, there's a sense of when you enter a certain classroom, like I can't believe this, again, this quote unquote secular thought has entered into the classroom at a Christian university. Um, I heard one time at a faculty meeting that one of the board members said that, you know, you could walk across campus and never run into a Christian, you know, faculty member. (laughs) on campus and you know something like that right has a lot of carries a lot of weight how do you navigate and more importantly you know how do you deal with you know some of these constructs that say you know sinners are going to hell believers are going to heaven um and we all know that doesn't just remain in, uh, you know, in the church pews or in the church walls. Uh, that comes out into politics. That comes out into hiring. That comes out into. I mean, I'm sure you heard about, you know, the new law that just got signed in in Florida. That's, you know, they're the governor that's making, you know, faculty members at all universities, not just private ones. All universities, you know, publicly state faculty and staff publicly state their political uh, beliefs. Um, otherwise, and get funding cut. Um, to mm-hmm. you know, and this is like University of Florida. I mean, the whole nine. So, how have you engaged with some of that, man? What are your your thoughts as it relates? I know you have a, a wealth of knowledge around different thinkers, um, and so I'd be curious to know, like, what you know, how have you, have you engaged with some of that? And 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 particularly, I know this is a long question, but in particularly, um, I'd be curious too, like, you know, where you start with history, particularly history of of religion as well. So feel free to take any of that. There is a whole lot there. Where I will start, I guess, is with history. So for instance, the idea of uh, being able to play some sort of parlor game called Spot the Christian on campus, right? Right. Like, well, I I totally agree with the characterization you're offering. There there are certain factions, uh, particularly in certain places where um, high-powered Christians, usually men, but not always, um, are interested in the the politics of identity as it concerns religious affiliation. Uh, Another reason, though, why history is so important is because if we take history seriously, we can turn to something like uh, the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries in lots of places in Europe where um, there was a widely uh, used notion of the more, the more M-O-O-R, as in uh, Arab Muslim. But the, the term often used was blackamoor, right? Literally, mm. B-L-A-C-K-A-M-O-O-R. And the, I bring that up as a way of emphasizing that um, the contemporary concept that um, scholar of religion Judith Weisenfeld has has recently helped to popularize her concept of religio-racial identity is not actually new. She knows this, and she's helping to tell that story of how it's not. But the 
most of us assume that a religious identity is somehow disconnected from other kinds of social markers or identifications. And the, the concept of the Blackamoor is one of the earliest instances where we can kind of like track where a racialized or even a racist ideological frame is starting to come online amongst white Europeans in Europe. And it's, it's being wed to religion in a real concrete way. So in response to the question of, uh, is that person a Christian or you can't see uh, a Christian on campus anymore as you pass, I don't know, the quad. Yeah. Like the, my response would be, um, well, what does a Christian look like? Like, what is the definition of Christian that we are operating according to? And if it's an evangelical answer, okay, that that helps in a lot of ways in that um, it offers an easier or easy-ish um, definition of what a Christian amounts to, someone who's born again, presumably. Um, but into what sort of system or ideological arrangement is a person being born again into? And so are they being uh, bathed in the blood of Jesus or are they being, uh, or is that blood also kind of uh, irrevocably impacted or dare I say tainted by the blood spilled uh, through white supremacy or something like that? Mm. Like it's, it's really difficult mm. to parse out um, the theological from the sociological and the historical. So I, I would ask the person, what's, it, what's at stake for them in uh, wanting to be able to spot the Christian on campus? I like that. I like that definition. And it seems like we've reached a point, irregardless of its religion, politics, <laughs> you know, schooling, that if someone disagrees, there is a sense that they're either A, dumb, uh, not woke, B, not woke, C, uh, completely brainwashed by whatever other side they may be uh, into. And there seems to be this kind of vitriol, violent reaction that if you don't believe this way, right, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, certain aspects, whether it be the abortion thing, whether it be same-sex marriage, whether it be, uh, you know, in, you know, transgender bathrooms or um, now, of course, we're dealing with, you know, critical race theory. You're here seeing all these newscasts pop up about, you know, children being brainwashed in kindergarten to hate other people because of critical race theory. Um, have you encountered any of that in the classroom? And, I, and, and I'm particularly asking you this because I'm, I'm genuinely curious because I've had to navigate some of these conversations. And the odd thing is, is that I've had to navigate some of these conversations with other black students Mm -hmm. um, I, I posted a while back that, you know, this was the first semester uh, coming out of the spring 2021 semester that, that, you know, that black, you know, cishet males, this first time I've had more of them just literally try to fight in, in one way or another more than white cishet males. Um, and that was just peculiar to me um, and got me thinking a lot more in regards to, okay, where are we at in time? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, what comes to mind for me is uh, I think we are experiencing an overwhelming deficit of truth tellers in 
contemporary Western society, especially the United States. What I mean by that is nothing kind of uh, overly romantic. I just mean real concretely, we're not giving one another the benefit of the doubt. And so we hide behind ideology more often than we're willing to engage in genuine dialogue or critical exchange. And I think that that's, uh, it's an epidemic on both sides of any political divide. Like we, we have folks on the right and left have both been for a, quite a while now been working from the position of kind of uh, recalcitrant fear. And for some of us having the, the, the space and the platform to um, say no more has been a long fought goal and we should celebrate that there are more of us than ever before in the position to uh, be speaking up in that way. On the other hand, there are more of us than ever before who feel that they're under threat in a way that is actually not new or unique from uh, the, how they felt all along. So like this notion of being under assault is um, not at all new as it concerns how uh, typical white Americans have, have acted, for instance. The idea that the white man is somehow uh, an endangered species, for instance, that's not new. It's so, and now folks on the right don't often speak in such explicit terms, but that's how they feel. They feel as if they're under threat something about their way of life or something about who it is that they've been or who they want to be is not going to be possible anymore. And we've got to come to, in a broader sense, like bringing everyone together, we, we have to come to some sort of table where people are telling the truth, which is that they've never actually been comfortable in the way that they feel like they used to be comfortable, but now they're not. Right, so, what I, I say all that as a, or in a roundabout way of saying that for the first time, more of us than ever before are telling their truths, not the white man's truths, but like their respective truths, um, but in a way that is not giving space to the other, the other side. And much of the racial antagonism ends up getting played out and couched in terms of religion. It's where it gets hidden, essentially. You know this. I mean, this is, this is like the, <laughs> this, the political space that you live and breathe in in certain ways, right? Like this is, how, this is why it's so important for us to have a more honest conversation. And honesty starts with recognizing that you can't talk about race without talking about religion. Or you can't talk about religion without talking about race. If you're talking about religion, without talking about race in the American context, then you're starting from the standpoint of a lie. You might not be lying on purpose, but you're lying. And, and folks on the other side are gonna like, like understand that they're being lied to. And that, that just is gonna shut things down. So um, I don't know if that was. No, that's, that's, that's good. That's real good because I also, in seeing all of this, also a, a, a major struggle for power, right? Um, who will control history, right? Because I think history mm -hmm. is very important. Um, 
I don't necessarily consider myself a, like a bona fide historian, but I also consider myself a historian in the sense that I have to know my history because I wasn't taught it in the traditional modes of education, right? In high school, I was, I mean, I, you know, growing up in, in Texas, right? It's like we, up until the sixth grade, we had textbooks that said the South won the Civil War um, until the state mandated that we get new textbooks. So just that alone can tell you. I mean, I, you know, I had a principal one time that couldn't stand it. I remember when MLK was finally made a holiday and he was just like, I'm not celebrating that nigger communist birthday, you know? So, um, that was kind of the ideological structure. But behind that, I felt like so much of that stuff, even the debate on going back to abortion and gay rights, marriage, all that stuff like that, it feels like window dressing. The reality of it is, is about power. I mean, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on some of that stuff, man? I mean, how have you seen that? And just, and particularly with some of the demographic changes that are both being predicted, uh, that we're seeing now, right? There's been this kind of reckoning over the last few years. Family Guy made a joke of it the other day about, for example, their character Quagmire, who's in essence a sexist, right? It's kind of this misogynist mm-hmm. that was yeah. maybe funny 15 years ago. Right. And they even said it in the show. They were like, yeah, we're trying to figure out what this character is going to be because he doesn't play out too well in the Me Too movement. Right. It's kind of the Me Too era. Um, So this kind of power struggle. I mean, I don't know. I mean, what how do you see some of those things? Does that hopefully that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. So there are real threats to the powers that have been. And then there are perceived threats to the powers that have been. And and those things aren't the same, of course. So in terms of real threats, I think demographic shifts over the next 30 years are, are significant. I think so much of the, uh, the almost religious zeal connected to solving the immigration crisis or kicking the can down the road is a calculated effort on the part of a partisan uh, Congress or, or body of leaders where on the one side they are actively afraid of those demographic shifts and on the other side they think those demographic shifts are a welcome thing but they don't want to undermine their white base so they can't so most of them can't say that outwardly and openly but there there's a reason that the the crisis is not being solved or it's being solved through uh, uh, an iron fist um and so that's an example of like concrete potential shifts in power um, as they might like lead towards some new to be seen version of who it is that we are. On the other hand, uh, here, this might seem like a kind of hokey example, but I'm also just anecdotally like in my my own time, but also in some research senses, interested in ufology. I'm interested in UFOs and aliens on, and things like on, that. Come on, and uh, you got you got a like, friend here, man. Come on, you, of, you, yeah. I, know, I know I do. <laughs> one of the, one of the guys who I, whose work I follow is a historian named uh, Richard Dolan, and yeah. Richard Dolan made his mark on the ufological community by hypothesizing this thing he calls a breakaway civilization, which is. This, uh, this hypothetical group of super rich elite, he doesn't frame it so much in terms of race, but certainly he's talking about a group of a cobble of super elite 
mostly or almost exclusively white men and women who he thinks have been in control of this high-end technology for a long time and that they they're trying to create a situation where they can leave us all in the dust and literally break away and have a kind of uh, an elite civilization over there and some sort of um, lesser form of it over here with all of the masses. Now, don't say that to suggest that I think that's going to happen literally, although I love to talk about those possibilities, but it's a wonderful metaphor for what might very uh, well continue to happen or, or happen as these demographic numbers are shifting. And it might also, I'd say, be connected to the declining or the waning middle class. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just because, in other words, what I'm saying is just because the masses continue to increase and, and essentially like change colors. So right now we've still, we're still looking at like 50 to 60% of the U.S. population is white. 30 years from now, it might be that there's no more, there's no single majority race any longer but that doesn't mean that we're not all suffering just like black and brown folks have suffered now for a long time so it those demographic shifts we can trust are probably going to happen but that doesn't mean that the power is going to shift hands in any kind of equitable fashion either right so um that is okay so this is good because i was going to ask you something about technology so let me ask you this then how have you seen just the the interaction well, before I ask that, let me ask you this. What do you think then about some of the more public, you know, readings and seeings then of, of, of UFOs? I think was it the report that just came out this last week, I think it was about, yeah. um, you know, they basically it just said, you know, I'm sure you read it, you know, was like, we, yeah, these are unexplained, but we don't and we're not ready to say that they're, you know, and I've got all kinds of questions, of course, about the moon and why Apollo's the, the last two Apollo missions that were fully funded and paid, why they didn't go back to the moon. And we got I, I don't want to spin off too much. I may I may have to get you back to, t- to talk about because this is something that I've actually wanted to talk about. I don't bring it up with very many people because. I get that the minute you bring that up, then you turn into like this kind of conspiracy. Am I going to wear foil on my head? Um, I'm not doing that. For those of you who are listening, I'm not doing any of that. But I am interested in how some of this stuff then connects back to religion. Like, because I don't believe we have the entire story in front of us. And I say that as somebody who still posits maybe 50% christian of of my own theological and ideological uh you know understanding uh i don't think we have the 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 everything in front of us does that make sense to you or or, you know what i'm saying i mean speak to me a little bit more about you know some people are saying in the ufo community that you know this is they're prepping us for something like of course i've been hearing that for a long time now but you know how do you see some of these reports becoming more common talk now I think there's been considerable effort to make this happen. Folks like Jeremy Corbell um, and uh, uh, other folks, um, uh, the journalist George Knapp, they've been, as well as um, the Blink 182 guy, Tom DeLong, mm-hmm. has had, they put forth considerable time, energy, and money towards uh, normalizing the notion of disclosure, as it's called. And I, I I teach classes on the, I'm teaching a class called UFO religion in the Americas in the fall. And I teach Ooh. in this, in every spring, I teach a class called religion and the paranormal. So where I talk about a lot of these themes, I think one thing you might find fascinating is 
I regard public dis disclosure of the UFO phenomenon, to say nothing of aliens, because they didn't actually come out and say anything about that, but I regard it as an, a symbol of the declining relevance of racial whiteness to the United States' identity, is it, which I think is something we, we should celebrate. So, so much of historical whiteness has been framed in terms of secrecy, at least as it's expressed itself in the Americas, has been framed in terms of secrecy and the, the denial of accountability. And here with the disclosure, now there are lots of folks who are thinking that this is one conspiracy or another, a psyop or all sorts of things. Richard Dolan being one who's like talking about this, no less. But at, at the same time, I think it's the fact that more politicians than ever, at least across the 20th century, are both interested in this genuine mystery and are also willing to say from their pulpit, so to speak, that they don't know, that they don't have the answer, that's a different kind of leadership. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it speaks to a different kind of a white person, right? I really do. This is the, this is the kind that can and ought be celebrated. And the, another important reason why this topic matters is because it doesn't fall along the usual political divides. I'm not talking about white progressives when I say that. I'm, I'm also not talking about white conservatives. I'm whatever, the, the amalgam of white folks I'm talking about who are expressing their comfort with admitting, not defeat of any sort, but just who knows, let's, let's hold hands and embrace this mystery together. That's a new kind of expression of uh, American whiteness. And I think it's one that we ought celebrate and cultivate um, so that's a, one of the things that come to mind about uh, the whole UFO talk right now. And I, I think a lot of people don't know what to do with it either. Because um, not even three years ago, to talk of UFOs would be considered hokey or a waste of everyone's time. But uh, so much of my work involves the study of social difference and and in particular, I try and almost always isolate on what I call, thanks to the work of folks like um, Charles Long, the um, late historian of religion, Charles Long. These are contact encounters. What I study, what you study, when we're studying the stuff of culture and the stuff of different types, kinds of people coming together, these are contact encounters. And so, um, the very notion of unidentified objects it is the stuff that we ought be interested in as anyone interested in the social world or anyone interested in social difference is the notion of an alien is not actually new. There's nothing new about an alien. An alien means uh, a foreign other. And and as far as I can tell in my own work, I mean, this book I'm working on that I'm almost finished with now is arguing for some version of this. Earlier work that I've written is arguing for some version of this. But essentially, the alien is a religious concept. It emerges out of biblical monotheism's effort to somehow justify its false claims towards omnipotence, omniscience, omnibenevolence, and... Um, uh, 
omnipresence, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which of my I just listed. But essentially, the alien is not a new concept to us. So how are we using the alien? This is a question I ask in my classes. Like, what is our buy-in as it concerns this disclosure moment? Now, I think it's worth celebrating a lot of folks. Or I think the moment is worth celebrating because it means that more of us than ever before seem... Uh, mm, ready to engage one another in more genuine human ways than more of us than, than any of us have ever been as, as far as a single critical mass um, but at the same time it also means that the folks who aren't ready are going to come kicking and screaming Yeah, and and so it's auspicious and uh, we all not celebrate too much because like maybe the concept of the alien is not what we need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That was kind of meandering. But. No, 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 no. I love the meandering. I'll take it all, man. I think this is uh and this is why I wanted to talk more with you about a lot of this because for me I've seen, I've come to see God as the, fitting into that alien, really much more like a, you know, as the Kardashev said, right? The Russian uh, mm-hmm. phys- astrophysicist, you know, who kind of, you know, put into civilizations like, you know, categories and stuff like God being a type three, type four civilization, right? That is able to utilize the power of a galaxy and to utilize the, you know, the literally the energy within a galaxy, you know, and, and, and. You know, scientists are still trying to figure out what fast radio bursts are, right? You know, you got these mm-hmm. these bursts that come out in deep space, and they but they show up in such a ways. I mean, again, I'm not here to hypothesize so much about that, but I'm like, I think about a lot about God is somebody with just more technology than us. And <laughs> I think about that because I'm just like, man, if I were to go back even 100 years ago and show somebody the devices that we have now... Um, and that they're able to connect, that we're able to see each other right now because of some airwaves that are going through the air right now. Man, people would might even have you hung for, uh, uh, you know, for sorcery or some stuff like that. Yeah, right? exactly. So let's connect those dots. So why would they have you hung? They would have you hung because of the religious zeal that was taught by way of the monotheistic notion of God. Yahweh is a jealous God, a God that cannot handle any sort of ambiguity in terms of his power and authority. And so what do we do when we face the alien, someone who would cause us to really, really question his authority, Yahweh's authority, or mm-hmm. our own? We destroy him. Right. That's 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 what we learn from. So to answer the question of is God a conservative? I say, hell yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> without a doubt. Deeply, deeply, deeply conservative. Not in the political sense, but in a in a um, in a rather caustic, violent sense. Uh, Ooh, that's deep. that's it's it's scary. it's scary. I think another point worth mentioning is that like we know where Yahweh comes from. We can tell the story of where these the the biblical gods come from well we can't tell the story of this is a place where uh what's his name uh alex van donegan or all these these kooky guys who we as scholars on the inside of the academy were taught to dismiss all of those crazy people on the history channel right Right. 
Right, but right. I mean, the, the truth is that we have no idea where the uh, Sumerian mythology came from. Right. We can follow. Right. We, we can go backwards in time, crawl backwards again to borrow a concept of Charles Long. And we can we can locate more or less where Egyptian gods come from, where Roman gods come from, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't know where the Anunnaki mythology comes from. Now, does that mean that it, we need to take it literally and that the mythology that is part of the contemporary ufological lore that is that we're somehow, as humans, we were created by these, these Anunnaki? I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But what I'm saying is that we don't know where that myth comes from any more than we know where we come from as, as humans, too. Well, I'd say we know more about where we come from then we know about where that myth comes from. And that's a genuine anomaly. It's called the Sumerian problem, even mm. among scholars. And yet, but yet, when someone has an alternative hypothesis, uh, like Von Donegan, who wants to say that we're all, we came from aliens or whatever, we're taught that, oh, that's heterodox. That's bad. We're supposed to protect ourselves and our authority as scholars rather than think creatively. Right. I think we, we learn how to do that again from a Western tradition that was taught how to fear difference um, from our religion, essentially. I love this. This is good. This is a great uh, as we're thinking about again, because I, I also wonder because we don't at least we don't have access to it that we know of, right? The, the ability to go back in time. We, you know, we can go forward in time, you know, by gravity and all that great stuff. You get enough strong enough gravitational field. But, you know, to go back in time, at least in our way of viewing things here in the universe, you know, we haven't necessarily posturized. Although, I'm forgetting the name, there is an, a black astrophysicist. Uh, I think he's at um, Princeton, and he's working on that, and it's fascinating some of the work that he's coming back with in regards to being able to go back he's working with aspects of nanotechnology anyway i have to get the name i always and that's my problem i always forget names like there's so much stuff that goes in i remember the concepts but then I'm, i gotta go back and get the names but he's been on you know science channel he was on when morgan freeman had the uh you know through the wormhole he was he's been on that how the universe works so he's a very well respected scientist but that's the other side of it right it's like that's um, you know, once you start entering into this realm, it's very easy then to be dismissed by other fellow colleagues, right? Because people give, oh, this is just kooky stuff. This is just, it's not science. And so that brings up all kind of things. But I love that you answered the question about God being uh, this conservative, you know, in a very frightening, violent way. Because um, I think that's what got me. Even when I was in, in seminary taking courses on the Old Testament, reading God was, you know, God was, was pissed off about something. And I always still felt rather weird sitting and listening to a story of Job because it, it, it was just like, okay, so now, so you've got a God that sits at the table that is able to play around and, and, and really dismissively kill a whole bunch of people, quote unquote, of his creation, to have yeah. this kind of game, if you will, of chance with the devil, however we want to label the devil. Um, Lot, same thing, if we could look at some of these stories. And, and again, I'm not here to debate the, the truth of them, but nevertheless, the anecdote is still there. 
mm-hmm. of the nature of God, right? This kind of God that would allow that type of stuff. And then that is just kind of overlooked when we think about, and let me put this back in context here, when we think about social justice and social activism, particularly when it comes to BIPOC bodies, it is always come back to, at least here in the U.S., as nonviolence, let's be, you know, let's, let's, let's be peaceful. Um, and I don't necessarily read major movements in history as being very peaceful. Now, I'm not advocating for violence. I'm not advocating that we go and shoot each other. I'm just simply saying that when we reimagine the American Revolution, we don't imagine that as right <laughs> the early colonists occupying spaces or marching in london it's like no where's guns and a whole bunch of them motherfuckers too so I, i'm curious about just like how you've seen some of that stuff play out again i'm not advocating for chaos and anarchy please don't sure, hear yeah. that but i yeah. am there is something theological to the nature of violence uh, that is racialized very many times, right? I mean, you, does that make sense? Is what is kind yeah, of what yeah, I'm yeah, putting yeah. out there? Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I think that um, there's no way to disconnect monotheism from violence. There simply isn't. There, we can frame all of the stories in the Bible in uh, in an explicit, inerrant way, or we can frame them all as figurative stories with some historical tales sprinkled in that that's so kind of disconnected from concrete history that we can't access what actually happened or not. It doesn't matter whether we're taking it in a literal or a figurative sense, historical or theological. The God that is presented to us in the Hebrew Bible is a violent, vengeful, and I want to say deadbeat God. If I were Moses finding that God at the burning bush, the only thing I would do is piss on that bush. I I would not want anything to do with this God. And I think we've all been um, uh, culturally, you, you don't have to be Jewish or Christian or Muslim in order to inherit the cultural baggage of this religious uh, codependency, as I'm, I'm calling it, right? Essentially, this God is an intensely jealous, emotionally dysregulated model. So to the extent that God serves as a paragon of how we should or should behave or treat one another or how we ought and uh, try and solve social and civic problems, this is a bad model to follow. It, and the, his only mode of engaging, well, not his only mode, but his kind of sumum uh, bonum or the, the kind of foundation of his engagement with his people, whether we think of those in the, as the Israelites or as Judeo-Christianity or as the Abrahamic traditions, is by threatening violence if they disobey him. <laughs> and if the, the, yeah. the, only thing, the only thing this God has to offer, in fact, is if you do obey me, then I'm going to kick your enemy's ass. And if you don't obey me, then I'm going to kick your ass. That, uh, at what point, at, at, like how far back do we have to go in terms of like uh, um, reaching a point where it made any kind of logical or rational sense 
that that God would be a, a useful concept or construct. It's not. It's a, it's it's wholly irrational. It's it's illogical, and it's also not at all life affirming. Mm. And so, like, there's there's nothing new. I say all of that is there's been twenty two thousand twenty two hundred years worth of people turning to this particular God as a way excusing their bad behavior and uh, using and and also um, uh, weaponizing the behavior of other people in their efforts at liberation or just in general. Now we it, complicating matters. We get sold this notion that this God Yahweh is somehow of the people. This is a God of liberation, right? Right, right. Uh, well, that may or may not be historically accurate. It may or may not be theologically accurate either. I think it's worth debating. And I, th- I follow someone like William Jones, the philosopher of religion, who's like, nah, at the end of the day, there is far more evidence to suggest that this God is a bad idea. Where was God when the Israelites were in bondage? Why did it take however long it took for God to show up, right? Like, that's one question. Like, yeah. if God if God is God, why didn't God show up on day one or do something to prevent it from happening at all, right? Like, we'll, we'll maintain covenant with you for in perpetuity for the rest of eternity if you just go back to day one and make it to where the bondage never happened, right? But that didn't happen for Jews or for the Israelites who are... We connect to contemporary Judaism, and it didn't happen for black folks in the Americas and indigenous folks in the Americas. Where is this God? This God shows up in the initial moment of contact where where white Europeans tell the indigenous folks, tell the black folks um, that, hey, our God is better than your God because it includes everybody. It's not just our God. It's your God, too. And as soon as they say that, all of a sudden they start treating them like trash. They treat them like anything but equals. So God gets to be this excuse. And I think the same thing holds true in the contemporary American political theater. When activists are out in the streets being rowdy or not or whatever, like there's a narrative where civility and public virtue and, um, turning the other cheek to bring in like Christian themes as well, ends up weaponized against those folks who are genuinely seeking liberation or newer forms of social and civic engagement that might be more life-affirming. Um, but I, I don't see God walking hand-in-hand hand with those folks. I know a lot of them believe that, and that yeah. is fuel, fuel for their activism. Absolutely. But Historically speaking, the only place I see God operating in those moments is from oppressors who are using the idea of God to try and control the population of folks who are um, who are doing activist work, justice work, things of that sort. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. No, no, this is beautiful. This, 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 as they say, will preach, man. Um, this is the type of stuff because I think. You know, I still have a lot of friends and colleagues, you know, still wrapped up in that. And I've seen some posts lately. And, I, you know, I, I try to really stay off social media a lot. I mean, I post some 
try to post funny stuff on Instagram that I find <laughs> <Your> Instagram is <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> that I find humorous throughout. <laughs> I have to watch myself because there's some times, some things that I'm just like, yeah, and there's people going to be thinking I'm really nuts for posting this. But <laughs> there's a few people, you know, out there who have posted that, you know, God is a, a God for the oppressed. And, you know, Jesus was. So I, I'm I preach, you know, because I have some friends of mine who, you know, feel the pressure. And I get it because I was once there uh, of those who hold the power, the power brokers that say you're a Marxist, you're a critical race theory a person, aren't you? Uh, you preach mm -hmm. the social gospel. And so they feel a need to have to put out there that I'm not preaching the social guy and defend that in such a way. I preach God's gospel. But I think part of that problem, right, is if we're going to say, I mean, if you think about it, because I love what you brought up. That the Bible, the Christian Judeo-Christian Bible, is the um, the uh, what is it? Uh, the infallible Word of God. Um, without really ever looking at how those words on those pages ever got put there to begin with, I think is idiocy, right? Without looking at how these books came there, because. Then, because that opens up and that problematizes a whole bunch of things, because then if we entertain that, right, it's like then you have to begin to ask more questions like, well, then who were the people in the councils of Nicaea? Who, 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 how did they evaluate? What measurements, what scientific measurements did they use to put some of these books? Why would really a reductionist and really asshole like Paul be so dominant in the news, New Testament, right? Uh, and all the other disciples be left out. And I, I know, I'm, sh I'm sure there's some, some seminary folks who are listening to this right now screaming at their audio device saying, it's because of this. I, 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 I get some of those arguments, but, I, I, but it leads me to believe that so much as of that has been brutalized at the expense of people and part of me feels in that sense that in that sense I do feel humanist in the sense that people did this stuff I mean these this was not a devil walking around with pointy ears and horns and a pointy tail enslaving people this this was these were people mm -hmm. <laughs> and um People who wanted to indoctrinate somebody else, again, like you said, into a certain form of religion. And so these are some of the things that I struggle with and that 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 bounce around in my mind that oftentimes I feel would revoke my tenure in full professorship at the university that I teach at because it would be enough to be like, ah, he's not a Christian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's so much there. I think it, practical help for folks on any variety of sides in, in these different issues, I think is so important. And it's the thing that's been missing from discourse for, for a while now. We've been more generally, we've been more concerned to be right than we've been concerned to be in relationship with people. And that has me maybe to some folks sounding like I'm taking a kind of theological or ecclesial kind of turn on, on this point, it's not so much, it's more about health and wellness. Like, who is it that we are? In so many respects, we as Westerners have inherited this idea of the self as this autonomous, distinct entity 
that um, we have to somehow protect when I think uh, it's more the case that who we are as individuals is who it is that we are engaged with in conversation and in community. So I, I think I don't think anyone needs to defend themselves. And more than that, I definitely think it's incredibly important for us to keep a kind of open, active conversation on the way that um, white tears ought not require black and brown napkins and like tissue paper and stuff. Like like Mm. black folks are, we all, all, all work together to ensure that black and brown folks carry no more of the responsibility of doing the emotional uh, hand-holding for white folks. Hmm. Hard pause, though. The, the, that work that so many white folks have historically turned to black folks to, in their doing or whatever, it's, it's still necessary. Uh, it just requires that um, more and more white folks take on that responsibility so that it, we can more equitably um, address all of these broad scale issues. And I think they're, just because their ideas or our ideas have been bad and, and hurt doesn't mean that there's not going to be a very real and concrete psychological deficit experienced by white folks when we take their bad God away from them. Mm. It's going to hurt. It's going to feel like they've been in surgery, like they've had a tumor removed. And when you first take, get a tumor taken out, you don't wake up uh, feeling grateful that the tumor's out. You f- wake up feeling pain from yeah. this procedure. Yes. And, and so many of us have done such shoddy work in terms of like distinguishing between like telling the truth and knowing like what actually needs to change in the way of people's ideas over and against like dealing with the whole person and how those people are psychologically impacted by all of this newfound information, whether it be, I don't know, like the fact that uh, God, uh, that Yahweh might be a white supremacist or the more potentially troubling fact that the first God ever in the historical record it comes in the form of a black or a brown pharaoh. Like the, uh, the idea that God is black is not something that was born of the existential strivings of James Cone, but it's part of the historical record. God, (laughs) in its first inceptions, historically, was black or brown. Um, But this is going to hurt for people who have spent hundreds of years having, like, generational information, as well as traumas associated with it, transmitted through their families and their cultures and things like that. These ideas are going to die hard. And so we have to find a way to tell the truth, but be equitable and thoughtful about our engagement with other people. And for my part, this I guess is the last thing I'll say on the point, I've tried to shift in my own thinking back towards believing in God in a kind of counterintuitive way. I'm still very much uh, a humanist, uh, but for so long I, have been a mesotheist. I've never really been an atheist. I've been someone who hates God. 
I absolutely hate God. And I feel like there was a kind of psychological transference at work in my own theological sensibilities that allowed me to guard against racial hatred and do so in the form of like putting that hatred onto the object of God rather than doing what a lot of white folks have done historically, which is like the opposite, essentially. We're going to love God so we can hate black and brown folks. I'm trying to hate God so that it might offset any potential like cultural baggage. Like if I get, I grew up in a culture where we're taught to hold black and brown folks in lesser esteem and value than white folks. I want to make sure I'm not doing that theologically. And so I kind of overcorrected in the form of this mesotheism, but I still can't help but consider monotheism to be really like, um, the root of all evil, so to speak. And so what, <laughs> what then would God look like? I mean, what could God look like? And for me, that has come in the form of, well, in a theoretical way, it's come in the form of intersubjective communication, intersubjective exchange of energy. So this is, it's not pantheist or panentheist. It's more just kind of, uh, uh, cosmological God, a God that I understand to be um, the fabric of reality as such. And what that is for me is exchanging ideas, being in conversation and community with one another. And so I've, I've, brought, I've, I've brought God back to my own kind of sensibilities in the form of intersubjective communication, but I think some, some kind of that may process theology, I think still offers options for folks who are deeply interested in the weeds of these debates of doctrine of God. Um, there, there are other options too, but I think we can't expect to just simply deconstruct these ideas and take them away from the populations mm -hmm. with, without offering some kind of replacement for them. Even if these, these communities, maybe they do, maybe they don't deserve to have us act this way towards them compassionately or whatever. But like the effects of not offering a replacement are going to be severe, uh, much more severe than if we're um, tending to them with um, attention to the whole person. So, um, yeah. I this is beautiful. No, I, I love it. I love it because, you know, I guess, again, I think this opens up. This is exactly what I was hoping with this whole conversation is that it opens it much up broader or I should say it opens up the the good, the bad and the ugly. And 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 even within that, it's like, you know, how you know, how do we sit in some of these tensions? I mean, you you brought up a lot and I appreciate it because I, these are conversations and I feel like. That for you and I, you know, we we talk about this. Well, at least you and I, you know, face to face, we do once a year, you know, at AAR. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, like you said, a lot of folks have not done the meticulous work of really purging out. Like, okay, what is it? Why do I believe this way? Like, what what's really going on here? What is the and and then what is the our own pedagogical process of? helping us to better learn about the theology because i feel like oftentimes so much people go to church as a means to an end like it's 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 one to shut people up because i know when people ask me what church you go to and i tell them i don't go to church it makes them feel hella uncomfortable 
Not at AAR <laughs> and places like that. Yeah. But it's one of the reasons why I've just stopped going to like Christian conferences that, you know, because it's like, well, oh, where do you worship at? I, I don't, you know, and it, you just see the look on people's faces. Um, and there's something about to um, there was a psychologist. Oh, what's his name? Fowler, James Fowler, who, you know, talked about the stages of spiritual development. He was, you know, relating it back to young people. But. I still think it's important because, you know, he talked about kind of this eighth stage that really he talked about how difficult it is because to get there. And it's really what we're talking about here, because there's so many other layers you have to bust through because it's it, it's it's a high price. It's a high price because there is shelter in denominations. There's money in denominations, which is a big thing. There is a sense of community. Even if there's a lot of other bullshit, people still have denominational. Like I'm asking myself, I don't. I'm sure I don't know if you were following any of this stuff. With I wasn't following much other than some of the peaks of the Southern Baptist Convention that was just happening and everything. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't doing much other than I asked a few weeks back, like on the show, like. Why do people still show up to this stuff? Like, if it's that fucked up, like, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, and inherently fucked up, not even just a mm -hmm. little bit like, oh, we got a few bad. No, like there's shit weeded, baked in. Mm -hmm. But I also get that there's that's a lot to give up. And I think when I started to really critically process my own theological understanding, I at least felt like I had a partner in it. Um, mm -hmm. Emily. Um, mm -hmm. To kind of walk it through And then years later I would, you know Find my academic community But, you know Sometimes I always just feel like Man, am I just nutso about some of this stuff? Like, really? Like, we really gonna get caught up And have an argument about this little It's like, we got a little speck of dust here And it's like, I mean I'm into audio engineering It's like, you can I've heard entire arguments <laughs> Dealt and had over How far you turn an knob Either to the right Two clicks Or to the left Two clicks You know mm -hmm. It's like Oh it's too bright this way No no no, no. You gotta bring it back this way And that's where I feel like We are oftentimes Not we But collectively As a society We are with You know In terms of religion Um Brother this is big I could keep talking I, I wanna be respectful Um of your time. Can I play this little video for you? I want to, I still want to get your thoughts on this. It's a quick yeah, little yeah. bit of video audio clip. Let's check it out. Okay. Born in Trier, Germany in 1818, Marx didn't invent communism, but it was on his ideas that Lenin and Stalin built the Soviet Union, Mao built communist China, and innumerable other tyrants from the Kims in North Korea to the Castros in Cuba built their communist regimes. Ultimately, those regimes and movements calling themselves Marxist murdered about 100 million people and enslaved more than a billion. Marx believed that workers, specifically those who did manual labor, were exploited by capitalists, the people who owned, as Marx put it, the means of production, specifically factories, but who did very little physical labor themselves. Only a workers' revolution, Marx wrote in Das Kapital, could correct this injustice. What would that revolution look like? Marx and his collaborator, Friedrich Engels, spelled it out point by point in the Communist Manifesto. It included the abolition of property and inheritance and the centralization of credit, communication, and transport in the hands of the state, and a lot more along the same lines. In other words, the state owns and controls pretty much everything. This notion was widely discussed and debated in European intellectual circles during Marx's lifetime. But nothing much came of it until Vladimir Lenin took power in Russia in 1917. This changed everything. Despite its repeated economic failures, 
Lenin's Russia, which became known as the Soviet Union, became the model for dictators around the world. Wherever Marx's ideas were practiced, life got worse. Not by a little, but by a lot. There is not a single exception to this rule. Not the Soviet Union, not Eastern Europe, not China, not North Korea, not Vietnam, not Cuba, not Venezuela, not Bolivia, not Zimbabwe. Wherever Marxism goes, economic collapse, terror, and famine follow. So, if cataclysmic failure, meaning terrible human suffering, is the inevitable legacy of Marxism, why do so many people, and now especially young people, defend it? The most common answer Marxism's advocates offer is that they, whoever they are, Lenin, Stalin, Chavez, never really practiced Marxism. They all somehow got it wrong. Marxism, we are told, is, at its essence, about sharing what we have, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, as Marx put it. Maybe that sounds good to you, but what does it mean? Who determines ability? Who determines need? The answer is the state, the ruling elite. Under Marxism, that's who has all the power. That's why the truth is this. Marxist dictators like Lenin, Mao, and Pol Pot really did get Marxism right. They wanted absolute power, and Marxism gave them the way to get it. Karl Marx never had to face the consequences of his theories. He lived most of his adult life breathing the free air of London, England, living off the generosity of his collaborator and patron, Ingalls, who, as it happens, inherited his money from his wealthy merchant father. Marx spent his days in the reading room of the British Museum, researching and writing. Although he was obsessed with the term scientific, he was never able to marshal data to prove his theories. There's a good reason for this. There was no data to prove his theories. For all his time in the library, Marx couldn't find any evidence to suggest that capitalism, the free exchange of goods and services through privately owned business, was a passing phase. Throughout the industrial age, working conditions constantly improved and wealth expanded. Marx had to rely on outdated reports to make his case. And even then, he had to manipulate the data to get it to conform to his predetermined theories. But Marx really had no interest in proving his theories. He knew that they could be put into practice only by brute force. He said so himself. Of course, in the beginning, communism cannot be affected except by means of despotic inroads, he wrote. His ends could be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. All existing social conditions. That's religion, family, personal possessions, freedom, and democracy. They all had to go in order to achieve Marx's vision of an earthly paradise. But since few people give up their liberties and property voluntarily, creating a Marxist state has always required guns, prisons, and summary executions. Marx's many disciples from Lenin on never considered this a problem. Some, like revolutionary poster boy Che Guevara, considered it a bonus. I don't need proof to execute a man, Che is said to have boasted. I only need proof that it's necessary to execute him. If you're still a fan of Marxism after all the death, suffering, and destruction it's caused, that's your right. But own up to it. Don't hide behind the, it's never really been tried line. It has. I'm Paul Kengor, professor of political science at Grove City College for Prager University. Okay. Okay, man. There, there we go. So I, I had to play that only because the debate on Marxism and, of course, critical race theory and whatnot. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, as I know you've studied a lot of this. Yeah. So, um, 
remind me to come back to critical race theory and Derek Bell, but um, I would encourage anyone listening to this to, this is another shame, not so shameless plug, but go to my website, uh, <laughs> Christopher, or, yeah, Christopher Driscoll, PhD.com and uh, download a document. It's called Marx's Theses on Feuerbach. It's a two page document. It's really short. And it is, in my opinion, a wonderful example of why Marx's ideas continue to matter. It's not because I uh, am a revolutionary and it's not because I want to turn my students into little communists either. It has nothing to do with that. It's because Marx offers what we call uh, a reductionist theory of religion. It's a, it's a, it offers a theory and, and the Paul, I think it was his name, whoever was just speaking, is right that there's not adequate evidence to support many of the theories uh, that Marx propagated, but that doesn't mean they're not important. The same holds true for religion and all of the ideological beliefs that we hold. They're not substantiatable. That's why it's called ideology, whether we're talking about Marx or whether we're talking about Christianity. Um, but I would encourage folks to go and check out that thesis on Feuerbach because it offers a way of thinking about what religion is. What is religion, particularly what is theology? Theology is a reflection of who it is that we are as people. Whether God is real somewhere out there or not, we can't get past the language piece of it. And so at the very least, we can learn about who we are by learning more about what we say and do and think about God. Keep your God, doesn't matter to me one way or the other. I'm not here to tell people to be some sort of atheist Marxist or not, but uh, I would, I'm wary of anyone who's suggesting that someone's ideas don't matter because of guilt by association. That's an ad hominem attack. Basically everything we just heard is an extended kind of ad hominem logical fallacy. It's literally illogical, not because he's trying to be stupid, He's not being stupid. He's just being illogical. The connections that he's trying to make don't uh, actually pan out. But I say all that to, uh, to, and qualify it by saying, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a capitalist. I'm not a good business thinker, but I'm, I'm happy to be in, inundated and surrounded by all of the trappings of capitalism. I get it has consequences, collateral damage, but not my beef one way or another. Um, but I, I don't think that capitalism needs to needs its defenders. Um, capitalism is going to do what capitalism is going to do. Uh, and I, I don't understand why so many on the contemporary American right these days treat Marx like this big, bad boogeyman. It's, it's beneath them. William Buckley would not be worrying over whether or not our children were reading Marx. You know why? Because William Buckley read Marx. Because William Buckley was more interested in um, thinking through the quality of ideas as opposed to just hiding behind ideological stances. He's right, this guy is right, that Marxism takes on this ideological quality that then gets repackaged by political regimes in order to take over countries. But to blame Marx for that is just bad scholarship and poor thinking lazy thinking. Um, but Marxism also, supposing that Marxism is a thing itself, Marxism and fascism are not the same thing. I would say that um, 
that guy is flattening any kind of qualitative distinction between Marxism and fascism. Fascism does not come from collectivities. It does not come from the proletariat. I'd say, if anything, fascism comes from one of the things that I imagine this guy and lots of other folks want to protect, which is Judeo-Christian monotheism. This monotheism is undergirded by a logic of the one which allows for sleight of hand technique. In In a problem that we have with social difference, we're gonna call you the same as us, and in doing so, we're gonna occlude you. We're gonna take over your culture because we're gonna say that your culture is our culture. That is the prototype for fascism. And what he's describing as all of these perils of Marxism, as far as I'm concerned, aren't. They are perils of fascism, for sure, but fascism and Marxism aren't the same thing. And contemporary leftists, like, like really prominent social activists and stuff like that, whole bunches of folks in their mid twenties to mid thirties are, they have these platforms where at times they sound dogmatic, they sound fascist, they do. And a lot of them I imagine do uh, talk about Marx, they do talk about like progressive political economic possibilities. But I would suggest that that the Marx and those progressive of politics are not why they're sounding fascist. They're sounding fascist in those moments because they've been uh, they've been brought up in a Western culture that has been inspired and informed by Judeo-Christian monotheism. So if he really has a problem with fascism and totalitarian regimes, he needs to take it up at church first, and then <laughs> and only then try and make sense of uh, uh, why it is that folks are so disappointed with capitalism. And so the last thing I'll say is that the thing about critical race theory being under attack right now is really sad because it offers tools. It offers a lot of tools that would go to um, assuage a lot of the anxieties that people are maintaining these days. Is it, That's why it's under attack. It's not under attack because it's a bad thing. It's under attack because it offers resolution and Lots of folks right now in the Western world want to play on the politics of fear rather than, I don't know, any kind of alternative. If it, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. If we're not gonna threaten you by, if we're not gonna find some kind of clever way of telling you we care about you by telling you that you're in danger, then we don't know how to do it. That's, that's what a lot of politicians act like these days, which not for nothing is, a the, the prototype for that is learned from the book of Deuteronomy. It's learned from the book of Leviticus. It is learned from uh, the Hebrew Bible. And it is learned from uh, the broader Judeo-Christian tradition. We're going to threaten you and tell you that life is dangerous and that you should live in fear unless you roll with me, unless you kick it with me. I, I think people are tired of that, and more people than ever whether that's folks in the Southern Baptist Convention or not. Like I th- one thing we can trust is that fewer and fewer people are gonna go to the SBC churches next year than this year. And the year after that is gonna be fewer than there was next the, the year before, et cetera, et cetera. These numbers are gonna continue to decline because people in mass are tired of being lied to. They're angry. And so a lot of them are lashing out and trying to renegotiate or reorient uh, themselves. And some of that's gonna be harmful. It is. It's not going to help anyone. But 
people have come are, are coming to terms with the way that that religious inheritance uh, of monotheism is not cutting it. It's not meeting their needs in a day-to-day way. Yoga is. Mm. History Channel documentaries about ancient aliens is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean that real sincerely. Like, like, um, people understand that they're going to church and the only thing they got to sell at church is either pie-in-the-sky notions of uh, immense prosperity or death and destruction. Sometimes both in the same sermon. And, yeah. and people are tired of being spun in circles in that way. Even the ones that are going to keep going for 10 more years, they're tired of it. And um, we would do well, I think, to have more conversations like all these that you try and host on Profane Faith. I think this is, this is where it's at. This is where um, things are going to be won or lost, whether we're having real conversations with folks uh, or not. So... Thanks for having me on. And thanks for doing what you do. Man, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you for taking the time out today and with all the setbacks and, and in terms of my own schedule. Thank you. This has been very full, a very full conversation and very filling uh, in that sense. Um, real quick, where can folks find you? You talked about your website, anything else? You said, you know, I know you have other books and you have another one coming out. Yeah, uh, so um, I'll have a book coming out called uh, Who You Callin' Devil, which is um, a kind of combination. It, it explores black esoteric religious traditions like the Nation of Islam and the Nation of Gods and Earths, particularly as those traditions have used the idea of the white devil. And so I'm not doubling down on that concept. I'm wrestling with it in this book and trying to think through in what ways is this concept useful for white men coming into what these traditions refer to as knowledge of self. And part of that definitely involves recognizing that um, the major organizing religious framework that we've inherited as uh, white men has been this deeply codependent, angry, vengeful um, God who is essentially an absentee or a deadbeat father who's like all bluster and then never shows up in moments when real intimacy could be forged. Like essentially white men have not uh, allowed ourselves to know how to engage with the rest of the world. Why? Because we've been following this image of a God who has never actually engaged in a healthy way with the community because it's always been under underwritten by this threat of violence. Mm. There are moments when the community is at peace, but the whole time, all the rituals, whether it's uh, Judaism or Christianity or Islam, those rituals are essentially uh, organized walking on eggshells. Mm. It's like all it is is one big fear machine that we have to get out of. Um, and so that's what I'm working on there. And um, folks can find more information on that coming up on my uh, Instagram page or my website, Christopher Driscoll, PhD. Uh, so. Excellent. Well, and for those yeah. listening, as always, whitehodgepodcast.com. 
Profane Faith. These will all, including the little video we heard from Prager University, will be in the show notes. So you should always go and check stuff out uh, for yourselves like we were talking about here. So uh, once again, Dr. Chris Driscoll, thank you so much for taking time and being on the show today. Thank you, Dr. Hodge. It's a pleasure to be here.